Psalm 58 through 61. Now, what happens here is that um, I think people remember Bill's studies a lot better than mine. Not only because he does them so well, but also because I'm trying to do a few in a row. But these are the last, we're going to do the last of the Meektums in 58 and 59. And then uh, there's going to be more of these uh, uh, psalms, but less, less than there has been of psalms where David is complaining about the evil and the wicked and asking God for judgment. There's, there's more to come. But he does move on to more contemplative ones in, chap- in verse excuse me, in chapter 61, 62, 63, and then on into the other rest of the Psalms, songs of praise, psalms of declaration, all these things. We've really been in the Psalms of his cry for righteous judgment by God to the world around him. Uh, It's a cry against the unrighteous judges. Verse 1, do you indeed speak righteousness? No, in heart you work wickedness. You weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf cobra that stops its ears. What a picture there. (laughs) Which will not heed the voice of the charmers, charming ever so skillfully. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away as waters which run continually. When he bends his bow, let his arrows be as if it cut in pieces. Let them be like a snail which melts away as it goes. There's another that they may not see the sun. Before your pots can fill the burning thorns, he shall take them away as a whirlwind. As his living and burning wrath, the righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked so that men will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is a God who judges the earth. Now, this cry against the unrighteous judges, that uh, this would offend some people pretty greatly, and you might struggle with it. And of course, we're reading the Old Testament, and we have a view to the new, and we've been doing that. We'll do it one more time, part of today, of looking at how to view these things. But for sure, there were unrighteous judges in Israel. You know, Saul was an evil king, yes? Okay. Could Saul act as cohorts, subordinates? people who will say, yes, sir. Doag the Edomite was the worst of the worst, right? It's the guy we, two weeks ago, when we talked about Doag killing all the priests and his helpers and his family, that's like the worst of the worst. But there were many others in Israel as well as around Israel. Widespread corruption is not a new or United States of America problem. It's a worldwide problem of human nature. Been here all the time. Been here since Satan, that serpent, caught Eve's ear. You know, it's been here. And so in verses 6 through 11, he talks about a, as a man under God's law, David speaks, because that law came with judgment on evil, and David is very aware of that. He also speaks prophetically about the ultimate judgment of God on wickedness as well as the reward of the faithful. Now, if all of this, and we've been through some chapters like this, so I'm not elaborating here. Are you with me? Is this a, so if you struggle with this, well, how could anybody say this? Or I thought we're supposed to love everybody. 
and if you struggle with this on another side, well, when's God going to judge? I'd like to see him get done with it. There's two sides where people go to the extreme. I'm tired of seeing all this evil and God hasn't judged it. Or, oh, I don't want to judge anybody. I want God to be nice. And we don't understand. Let me ask you this. Can you trust a God who will not deal with evil? Could you trust him? And You're right. The answer is no, you can't. So don't bail on this. Wait. Not only wait on the Lord, not only go through all the scriptures, not only listen to the studies we've given earlier and the studies that are coming, do your homework. Don't just react to one section of scripture out of your emotion and how you feel because that makes you God and him subordinate to you. So just a thought for you, but also wait as we go through. This is to the chief musician again, set to do not destroy. It was a very famous tune. Okay. Uh, (laughs) I don't know the tune. Uh, And this is when Saul sent men, when David was his faithful servant, to watch at his house in order to kill him. It says it right here. So we go with that. And Saul did send men to try to kill David. And, you know, uh, his wife, Saul's daughter, Michael, put something in the bed that looked like it was him sleeping. And he climbed out the window and they came in and wanted to kill him. For what? For no reason. Because Saul hated him. Because David, he was jealous. Everybody with me on that? Remember that? We've been talking. Bill's been talking about this. So, uh, verses, uh, well, we'll just read the whole psalm. Oh, and we'll read one through four. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. This is not a statement through no fault of mine that David says I have no faults at all. It's talking about in this situation, I've done nothing against Saul. And we know that throughout David's life, he restrained his men from even hurting Saul when they could have killed him. You know, how do we deal with this? With When people have, we've done nothing wrong, and yet we are being attacked. 1 Peter 4, 14 through 16, hear what Peter has to say about it to us as we look back. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on our part, he is glorified. So if you're reproached for the name of Christ, I'm not done yet with the verse, but if you're reproached for him, on your part, you're to glorify him. He's challenging. But let none of us suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer. But wait, 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 there's more. Uh, don't let us, none of us suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if any suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Um, Isn't it interesting that we have murderers, thieves, and evildoers and busybody in other people's matters altogether? Does that say anything to us here (laughs) about being a busybody? About There's a difference between ministering to people as the Holy Spirit and telling people everything that you think they need to know about every subject in the world and entering into their realm. And I got news for you. When your kids are growing up, 
they really don't, unless they ask you to be their counselor, they're not really asking you to be their counselor. And it doesn't mean you can't say anything to them ever, but it does mean that if you try to parent a a 27-year-old like a 7-year-old, bad news, they won't like you. So just on the parental side, but it's in every kind of side. So interesting. But let none of you suffer as these evil things. But look, if you suffer as for doing good, there are times when those people who love God are going to suffer for doing good. Can I say that again? Because you might not have heard that. There are times when people who love God are going to suffer for doing the right thing. And some people give up doing good. How are we doing? How am I doing? How are you doing? Is there an area you've given up that God wants you to do because you suffered for it? I'm not finding that avenue in the Scripture. I'm finding that Peter's words are not so low. He's surrounded by Paul and James and all the and Jesus <laughs> telling us the same message about suffering for doing good. God has no alternative to doing good in the face of evil. He doesn't give us an alternative to doing good in the face of evil. But he does give us his Holy Spirit and glory. He gives us courage. He gives us hope in the ultimate judgment that he will provide. And we do not need to be ashamed for enduring suffering to the very end. We cannot tell the persecuted church in Pakistan oh, we're trusting God's with you in this and we know it's going to work out because you're going to go to heaven no matter what you face and then fight tooth and nail with everything that happens to us instead of yielding ourselves to God. Now, there's places to make a stand, but we talked two weeks ago, overcome evil with good, and that message remains right now, today. Overcome evil with good. Will that always mean overcoming evil with good, always mean a public victory? Not necessarily. But how much is your soul worth to you? I'll pause for a moment. How much is your soul worth to you? What are you talking about, Rick? Proverbs 4.23, your inner person. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. In case we didn't know, Solomon here, in his better state, Jesus, Peter, Paul, have all told us, it is the life that God has put within you that wells up and comes out of you that is the issue. It is not the things that come at you from the outside that are the real issue. They really do happen, and they really hurt, and it's real. But the victory over those isn't an outward fight. It's the spirit within you working through them. 
and we'll look more at that, verses 5 through 17. Um, you therefore, O Lord, God of hosts and God of Israel, o- no, do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. At evening they return, they growl like a dog, and all go around the city. Indeed, they belch with their mouths, swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have their nations in derision. I will wait for you, O his, for you, O you, his strength, and it could be my strength, and it's a reference to Jesus, really. He's our strength. For God is my defense. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. Do not slay them, lest my people forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride. And for their cursing and lying which they speak, consume them in wrath. Consume them that they may not be. Let them know that the God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. At evening they return, they growl like a dog. They go all around the city. They wander up and down for food and howl as if they are not satisfied. (laughs) But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning, for you have been my defense and my refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises, for God is my defense, my God of mercy. It's a lot like what Bill prayed this morning at the beginning of, or in the middle of service, which I loved. You know. Did you ever hear that song, I will sing of the power of the Lord, one person besides, which puts you in that old category with me. Uh, I will sing of the power of the Lord, come down. You just repeat that 500 times. Uh, <laughs> so now you know that song. Listen, listen, we're not to be conformed to this world, but what are we to be? Transformed by the renewing of our mind. So this is the point about how much does your soul matter to you? Your soul, your inner life, your relationship with God, your ability to separate in your own heart from evil intentions and allow it to control you and dominate your mind is primo, is numero uno. Because you will become like those that captivate your thoughts, even if they're negative thoughts. You'll become like that. We are to be separated. We need God's help and intervention. And Paul tells us in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world. Don't let the world mold you into its form, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove the good and holy and acceptable will of God. God has a plan for you even when you're going through this kind of stuff. So we all know, I think we all know, many of us know that Ephesians 6, 12 reminds us that against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's important to realize the nature of the battle that we face, even as David describes it in the physical world he lived in with physical enemies and was graphic in his declaration and cry to God to judge the evil, we can see in the New Testament there are people who are bent on evil. We'll get to that. But there is a reality that people are pawns of Satan who is using them in our lives, in each other's lives, in everybody's life, the flesh. And you'll never win. You'll never win a spiritual battle through the flesh. If you make 
don't you make people your enemies. If they make themselves your enemy, so be it, but don't you make them your enemy. And realize that there's a spiritual battle going on. This is our real enemy, Satan. You know, he's the prince of this world, which is cosmos, the system, power of the air, the subconscious mind, other verses say. So knowing the ultimate victory of God, David does, even though he doesn't know all this concept that we have of spiritual warfare exactly the way we know it, he doesn't. He gets it, he knows a lot, but he's fighting physical battles, right? And he's talking physical. We're fighting spiritual battles, and we can see he shouts that he's going to sing the power of the Lord. He's going to, in the midst of his trouble and his frustration, he does fight his battle in prayer, doesn't he? And there's more to be done. There's more to be done in that realm for him and for us. Psalm 60, this is uh, a meek time of David. When he fought against Mesopotamia and Syria and Zobah, and Joab returned and killed 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Historically, Mesopotamia and Syria and Zobah, all these things, Joab returning from this Valley of Salt is all it's historical, but it was earlier in David's reign over Nahum. record some of David's victories over Philistia, Moab, and Syria. And in 2 Samuel 10, 1 through 19, tells of David's victories over Ammon and Syria, and in 1 Chronicles 18, 11 through 13, gives David's victories over Edom with Joab in the Valley of Salt, also Moab, Ammon, Philistia, and Amalek. So the history of Israel and the land is really well documented. They've been there, and these things happen. Now, when we read these verses... Notice that it's not all peaches and cream because God's with them. There's struggles. Oh, God, you have cast us off. You have broken us down. You have been displeased. Oh, restore us again. You have made the earth tremble. You have broken it. Heal its breaches, for it is shaking. You have shown your people hard things. You have made us drink the wine of confusion. You have given a banner to those who fear you that it might be displayed because of the truth. So even though there's trouble, and even though they're hurting, he's still giving them a banner. Are you seeing that? That your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand, and hear me. Verse 6, God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet for my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom I will cast my shoe. Philistia shout in triumph because of me. Who will bring me to the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies? Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Through God we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies." You might say, David gives a mixed message here. Well, have you ever prayed and kind of went a couple of directions with the Lord while you prayed? (laughs) And one minute you're declaring his goodness, and I know you're with me, and then you're going, but Lord, this is really bumming me out, and what's wrong with this over here? So what we see here, uh, we don't know all the difficulty Uh, We don't have a clear record of every battle and and the enemies that obviously David went through difficulty, even defeat, which would usually be, of course, due to some sin. 
It could be for other reasons. Uh, If anything is very clear from this, it tells me this. You can't ride, I can't ride the coattails of my former. I need God right now. I need to be with God right now. I need a daily relationship with him. I need to keep current with him about direction, about repentance, about renewing. Furthermore, it's all about God's purpose and his plan that matters, not mine. His glory counts. Now, when he says, he verses, verse 7, Gilead and Manasseh are mine. You know, those, those are places of his people. Moab was, of course, the cousins through Lot's children who fought against Israel a lot. Moab is my washpot. Does that mean Moab is, is lesser to me? Or does, it, or does it mean Moab, I use Moab as a tool to wash Israel because of their sin? You get to judge. This is your Bible study. Edom is always spoken, always. Edom is the children of Esau who really hated their cousins, the Jews, the Hebrews, who wouldn't let them pass, who built up an animosity and hatred and were helped helped anybody that came against them. They would like say, well, here's some tools for you to go tear down their wall, and here's a sword. I see you lost your sword here. They were always ready to destroy Israel. Edom, Edom has always been negative. Herod was an Edomite. And I, I will cast my shoe over Edom. I will cast my shoe. Does that ring a bell? Like when Ruth, and this was a gentle, when Ruth, when, when Boaz took Ruth, and there was a closer kinsman because he who could redeem Ruth's uh, father-in-law's property by marrying Ruth. He said, no, I'd like the property, but I can't marry the woman. And, and they had him take off his shoe and hold it up. Now, they're supposed to throw it out, and they're supposed to smack him with it. They're supposed to spit in his face, I'm sorry, and throw his shoe down and say, this shall be done to the man who will not, who will not redeem his brother's property. They were nice to the guy. They worked it out. You know, Boaz wanted Ruth. Taking a shoe off of a person's foot in the, in, the, in the public square among the elders, you got to do that when they were reneging on a responsibility and a covenant, an agreement they had. I will cast Edom as a shoe. It was a shameful thing that God is saying to them. Comprende? Okay. So he's talking about these nations has God lost control of any of these situations? If you're David there and his men, and you're in the middle of battles and they're not working, that's a hard time to go, yeah, God's in control, isn't it? So it's easy to say God's in control when it looks like God's in control. It's another thing to say God's in control when it looks anything but that God is in control. But folks, what we understand is we take a step back, you know, driver's education, what do they say? Get the big picture. Don't stare at the white line. I'm staying, I'm not going off the edge. Crash, guys are turning in front of me. I'm crash, Mr. Magoo. You know, it's like you can't just stare at the white line. You can't just stare at the headlights that are coming. You keep your head moving. You look at what's coming in from each side. You look ahead. You look ahead. You see the big picture. That's how you drive or how we're supposed to drive. Well, to see the big picture. 
because the small and the immediate picture can be very ugly and very painful. Some of you are fighting evil battles with evil things right now. They're coming against you. Uh, More than one I know of where there's really situations where evil is rising up against people. And it ain't easy. It's important to remember that God's in control because what David says is the help of man is useless. Only God can give us the victory. Do we know that? Sometimes we do know it because we just don't have any way unless God does it. So David catalogs the battle against evil enemies within a nation against God, and he says, God, get them. Still, what do we do with all this desire to see judgment on the wicked? Is this really a godly prayer? We've spoken two weeks ago, Jesus taught us to pray. Well, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. But he also taught us to pray, deliver us from evil or the evil one, additionally, right? Didn't he say deliver us from evil? It's not wrong to pray to be delivered from evil. And we do have a desire to see righteous judgment come on evil. And yet our prayers are to be very much tempered And I said two weeks ago, we pray not just like David, but like the son of David. Can I back up beyond simply Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. Can I back that up any further than that? Well, number one, I don't have to. (laughs) That's good enough. Since the ultimate evil was done to Jesus and his cry for forgiveness shouts louder than any other voice. That's the loudest voice in the room. Father, that's the loudest voice in the universe is Jesus saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. But on the other hand, there's framework in the law of judgment of the Old Testament that always points us to the mercy and grace of the New Testament. What do I mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. The law came by Moses, John 1, 17. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth by Jesus Christ. That's John 1.17, and we know that when the law came on Mount Sinai or Horeb, 3,000 people of the many people that were sinning while Moses was getting the law, 3,000 died. They were killed. We also know that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, 3,000 were saved. Coincidence? I think not. God is revealing the law came by Moses and the law brings death, which also is a scripture, but grace and truth, but life comes through Jesus Christ. So 3,000 die, 3,000 are saved. Did Jesus ever express judgment, God's judgment on sin? He absolutely did. Yes, you're right. Uh, he spoke to Capernaum and other cities who were in rebellion against him were in the area where he grew up and did most uh, did a lot of work. He says, uh, your judgment is going to be worse than Sodom because if the things done in, in you had been done in Sodom, they would have repented a long time ago. Remember that? He's talking to Hebrew people, Jewish people in Israel yeah, because it's not like everybody who's there is godly. Yeah. And so... Um, he, he spoke to, to this about, about these cities, and they were receiving judgment for rejecting, and, they, and people will, for God sent his only begotten son. But 
there's no question that Jesus told about his judgment to come. But notice that Jesus' hardest rebukes were, number one, to the Pharisees. Would you agree he rebuked the Pharisees harshly? For their hypocrisy, and they were keeping other people away from God. When somebody gets in between people and pushes people from God, God does not like this. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus rebuked them harshly, woe to you, how will you escape the damnation of hell? And then beyond the Pharisees, we have the Sadducees. And they also distanced the people from God, and they did it both through self-righteousness, but mostly through their system of fleecing the people at the temple courts for their for their sheep and the exchange of money and everything where Jesus turned over the money changers and all of that. They controlled all that. They were keeping people away from God. I experienced, um, I, we went to the Western Wall one day, and these guys, these Jewish guys, the rabbis and the guys in the, and they were wearing their tefillin and their, all their stuff, and they pulled me, there's all this stuff going on, and there's the scriptures are being unrolled, the scrolls of the Old Testament, and, and they pulled me in to pray over the reading. They, they knew that I w- they could tell I was Jewish, I think, or they would, I don't know if they'd grab anybody, but they grabbed me and they grabbed some other tourists, and, and usually it looked like they were grabbing people you could kind of tell were Jewish. Saying, you've got to come over here and pray over the thing. And I thought, this is so cool, Lord. I'm, I'm right here with these guys. And so I took the, there's a pointer, and, and you kiss it, and you, you, know, you touch the scriptures, and you kiss it, you, you know, and, and, you, and then you point to it, and you say the prayer. And they had me do what I could do, and I happened to have known the prayer, but I can't remember everything about it because the next thing that happened is what I really remember. When I got done, I was like, wow, this is so cool. I start to go away, thank you. And I start to walk away, and they grab me. Pay the rabbi. Pay the rabbi. You got to pay the rabbi. It was the last day of our trip. I had $30 cash left. I remember this. <laughs> I had $30 cash yet left. And it's going, oh, they want me to give a donation and pay the rabbi. For, oh, well, okay. I pull out my cash, and I start to hand 20 he grabs the 20 from me and takes it. And I, and I now I'm mad. You know, I'm not mad so much about the money. I could have got more cash. I'm mad at what they're doing to people. Okay, I'm mad at that. I had the sense to know I love Jesus. And this is just, you know, I could see beyond it for myself. But I was thinking about people coming there and being, being ripped off by these guys. Sorry, I'm talking about the guys at the Wailing Wall, but... And at first I'm mad, and then it hit me. Like As I'm walking away, I went, this is perfect for me to experience a teeny, 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 weeny, teeny, to come hundreds of miles, bring your sheep, protected it. You've only got so much money, and you go there, and they go, no. Somebody pulls out a magic marker and marks up your sheep. You know, oh, look at it. It's, it's they didn't have magic markers, but you get me. As they do some, your sheep is no good. You have to buy this sheep. And your money needs to exchange, and you get like 30% of what it should be worth. Whatever they were doing to them on those levels, can you imagine you've traveled many miles, days? Your heart is to go be in the presence of your brethren and the God of Israel, and you go to the temple court. And the very people who are in charge of it rip you off. 
What a heartbreaking, horrifying thing. Yeah. So, Jesus didn't like that, and he still doesn't, no matter who it is. When people take advantage of Christians, and I wonder why people say, you just got to give us, even in the Christian world, you must give us your seed faith money. You've got to give. If you give, you'll get back. If you give, you know, this ministry won't go on without you, but if you give, you'll be blessed. If you give, you'll be blessed and God will just meet all your needs. Well, if that's true, why don't you give and let God bless all your needs? How come you're asking everybody else uh, the way that they do ask? Um, So Jesus was hard on the Pharisees, and he was hard on the Sadducees, and then then he was hard on who was the third group. Say it out. You're right. We'll conclude. We'll include them with the rest. Give me one more group after them. His disciples. When I say he was hard on them, he expected and demanded and taught them not to be self-centered and not to be self-righteous. It was important to him, wasn't it? He 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 he. he there's when Jesus went to Matthew's house, surrounded by publicans in that house, sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes for sure, the whole, all the lowlifes that were Matthew's friend, all the lowlifes that were Matthew's friends. That's who they were. What we call, what people don't use that term much anymore, but lowlifes, according to everybody who thought they were righteous. You don't have recorded by Jesus. I'm not saying he, he blessed their sin. He did not. He influenced them. But you don't have him recorded as rebuking any of them. I imagine his disciples were freaked out. Like, why are we here? Well, I don't know what he's doing. You know, Jesus, he's always doing stuff like this. <laughs> He's freaking us out. It's not like when Jesus said, Matthew, come and follow me. They said, oh, good choice, Lord. We agree. This was, this was, to them, they were closer to being zealots for the most part than they were closer to being embracing of these people. And, you know, Jesus, didn't, there's not recorded a word of rebuke to those people. Then he goes to a Pharisee's house, Simon the Pharisee, and, he's, and the woman comes in and starts crying at his feet and washing his feet with her tears and her hair and then anointing his feet with oil. And Jesus sees the, knows the Pharisee thinks, if, if this man knew who this woman was a sinner, he would not let her anywhere near him. And he says, I got something to say to you. Well, say on, Master. So, so I came to your house. You didn't wash my feet or anoint them. You didn't give me a kiss. This woman hasn't ceased to do these things for me since the moment she came in the door. Her sin, which is which, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And to whom, because to, he tells the woman, "Your sins are forgiven you." To whom much is forgiven, the same loves much. But he to whom little is forgiven, loves little. Let me make this really clear, and I could back it up by a lot of scripture. Nobody. I'm not arguing with Jesus. I'm going to clarify something that he clarifies. Nobody's sin is little. He's talking about how you see it in your mind. 
because his scripture all the way through and his words say nobody has a little bit of sin. So, but what happens is you think you have a little bit of sin and that other people have a lot of sin. That's all right between here and here. Okay, that's right in the mind. They are all be together become evil, God says. So, so is there no room for having a desire for righteous judgment? There absolutely is. Paul the Apostle did mention in 2 Timothy 4, 14 through 15, a guy named Alexander the coppersmith. And he said, uh, he did us much evil. He says, Timothy, Alexander the coppersmith did us much evil. The Lord reward him according to his work. Yeah, that's not up there for you. I didn't put it up there. He did us evil. God deal with him because he withstood us all the way. He stood between the sharing of the gospel with these people and tried to stop us from reaching them, just like the Pharisees or the Sadducees or even kind of the disciples pushing the people with children away. (laughs) Not quite as severe, but still a problem. People who try to keep other people away from Jesus, that was where he reserved his greatest and really only strong rebukes for that kind of behavior. So Paul does say, the Lord deal with this guy. I've not, it's not like you can never say that. Yet in Acts 13, verse 10, it's where Paul meets the sorcerer who's also doing the same thing, trying to keep the pro-council, the government leader, from listening to Paul. And Paul finally turns to him and says, you're going to be blinded for a season till you learn not to blaspheme. And the guy's blinded, and he got, it's a miracle that God uses Paul in the guy's life. It's one of those miraculous uh, things that is not the common thing, but it is done miraculously by God through Paul right now. <laughs> because in Israel, if a guy was a sorcerer, he was be stoned. They're not in Israel. He's in a Greek town, you know, the Roman city. But he does say to him, he'll be blinded for a season. I've shared it before. I remember the first time I looked at that and went, well, that's mercy. Paul knows what it's like to get blinded for a season and how it turned him around. He was a persecutor. He was seeking to destroy. He knows his background. He knows his weakness. And he knows how God revealed himself to him. And rather than saying, you're dead meat, he says, be blinded. Now, the reason you probably won't ever have that happen, you might, where you could have that kind of power go through you, it could happen. God can do it anytime, anywhere. It's probably a good thing that we would probably go around zapping. You know, if we thought we owned that power, we would go around zapping people all the time. I don't know. You know, there's a time. I've seen things, and you have. I've heard of things that I believe where God used people to bring an immediate response on someone to show them that they're in the wrong but it was to redeem the guy. His own conversion in Paul's life showed him an opportunity of salvation, not damnation. So David, in a host of these psalms, cries 